So this morning, I get a chance to talk about this idea of the reproducing church. And that's, a, that's an interesting phrase, and it may be one that you're not entirely familiar with. And so I, I love the opportunity to explain what that is, and then to talk about, biblically, what does it look like for us to participate in that with our, with our money, with our resources, and then what's the hope? What is the ultimate goal? So I want to start, uh, if you have your Bibles, we're going to just take another look uh, at the Great Commission. If you don't have the Great Commission memorized by now, uh, well, you know, it'll, it'll happen soon. We talk about it a lot. But this is Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. This is after Jesus has gone to the cross. He's been buried in the grave, raised from the dead, spent a few weeks with his disciples, and now he is preparing to ascend into heaven. And Jesus shares with them uh, what is frequently known as the Great Commission. It's Jesus' call or uh, gifting to us of purpose, of why we're here, of what we're supposed to be doing, uh, of why we aren't just immediately taken up into heaven the moment we give our lives to Jesus, but you are here for a reason, and this is that reason. So Jesus says this, Verse 18, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Something significant just happened in the cross and the resurrection to where Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So with that authority, verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, the Great Commission was not designed to be a one-generation command. We know this because Jesus gave this command to the disciples, and those disciples immediately went out and obeyed Jesus. They started going to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth and making disciples. The ones that were there that heard him did that. But in addition to that, the guys that, and gals that they led to Jesus and taught them the ways of Jesus and baptized them into Jesus, those people also started to go out and make disciples of all nations. And then we actually, in the pages of the scriptures, we see another generation, a third generation of people that had given their lives to Jesus that start taking the name of Jesus to the nations embedded into discipleship embedded into leading somebody to Jesus is showing them their new purpose in life, their new function. The reason that heaven doesn't start immediately when you say, yes, Jesus, is because you now have a function in this world, and that is to tell other people about the name of Jesus. And so they go out and they start doing this, obeying Jesus, carrying out the Great Commission, and in each new community, churches are started. New churches are built. There are not physically built, but, but socially built. There are new gatherings of people in every community where the gospel goes and is planted. And so what we see is that there is a church planting component to the Great Commission. Uh, Tim Keller uh, pastor in New York, uh, many people have referred to him as the Yoda of Christianity, which I think is very affectionate. Uh, he's not small and green. Uh, he says this. He says, virtually all of the great evangelistic challenges of the New Testament are basically calls to plant churches, not simply to share the faith. The Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, is a call not just to make disciples, but to baptize in Acts and elsewhere, it is clear that baptism means incorporation into a worshiping community with accountability and boundaries. 
The only way to be truly sure that you are increasing the number of Christians in a town is to increase the number of churches. So what we have is a call to obey Jesus by taking the gospel into new communities and new churches start around that gospel being planted in new places. So church planting is obedience to the Great Commission. But it's also strategic. If we want to be strategic about our obedience to the Great Commission, church planting is one of the ways that we can do that. You run into a couple of things. Uh, Number one, in areas of the world where Christianity is illegal, and there are many of those, uh, the reproducing church is the only option. Uh, To gather in a space like this would be inviting the authorities to crash in, uh, to arrest everybody, to uh, put people on trial, to kill some, to jail some, whatever. That would be, uh, it's a non-starter. You wouldn't do this. You gather in a home. You gather in the back of a restaurant after closing hours. You gather in a warehouse. Uh, The one that my parents were a part of, build three floors of a factory, wait till the inspection is done, and then build a fourth floor and use that for your meeting place that the, the nation doesn't know about. You find ways to meet, and then you start many more of those because there's just no room for the more people. And places like China, where the church is underground, not above ground, the church is underground, uh, the gospel is expanding at the most rapid rate that we've seen in Christian history because the church is reproducing like crazy. People hear the gospel, they go to the next town over, they start preaching the gospel, people get saved, they grow a church in their home, and they send people out, and it happens and happens and happens, and the church is reproducing rapidly. So in many places, you have this situation where the reproducing church is strategic as a must-do because you can't grow the church, you have to reproduce the church. Uh, It's also true in urban settings where it's just too expensive to do something like this. Uh, You go to San Francisco or L.A. or New York or Tokyo or Paris or any of these major urban centers, and the cost of gathering people in a large setting is astronomical. It's almost impossible to get to a point where you can afford to do this kind of a thing uh, if the schools are closed to you, if the, if the concert halls are 12 grand a week or whatever the case, then it just doesn't make sense. And so the reproducing church in an urban setting uh, is such a critical component to how the church advances. If any of you are following Francis Chan's story, uh, he left Simi Valley, moved up to San Francisco, and has started a reproducing, uh, essentially an apartment church movement where they will lead churches of 10 to 25 people in apartments and reproduce that and send that all over the city because there just aren't places to do that kind of thing or this kind of thing in San Francisco, or at least not many. And so you find that it's strategic to help with the sustainability of the church, to keep the costs down, and that is a critical piece. And there's another form of strategy that's important, and that is that new churches... And this is put together by researchers. There are two main researchers. Uh, One is a guy named Ed Stetzer that studies this stuff, and another is Tim Keller, the guy that I just read. Uh, In addition to being a pastor in New York, he also leads an organization called City to City uh, that does church planter training and development. And both of them acknowledge the, the truth of this stat, and that is that a new church that's five years old and younger is 30 times more likely to lead somebody to Jesus than an existing church five years or older. Let me ask you guys, why do you think that is? Raise your hand and I'll call on you. Yeah, Joe. Fresh passion. Okay. People who are very close to their sin remember what it's like to be saved. Yeah, fresh passion. A lot of people just kind of getting on board, a little whirlwindy, everybody's pumped and excited and then you just, you're geared up and you're ready. Hector, yeah. Uh, This concept is very 
Okay. Number one, divine appointments. Okay, divine appointments. Two, relationships. Relationships. Both is the only thing that we're going to take when we go, when we die and go to Jesus. Beautiful. Three, three, mon- three months ago, really short, three months ago, I was uh, four days in coma. Yeah. And uh, I thought I was done. And uh, today, I'm celebrating life. Yeah. And be a mainly, mainly a part of this beautiful moment. I just, I just told Steve that, and I told him, I cannot afford not to be involved in this beautiful Beautiful. Thank you, Hector. Yeah, Anna. Yeah, that's absolutely. Um, when you have a new church plant, yeah. you have a lot of new believers who have relationships with unbelievers. Yeah. And so um, they have an opportunity to speak into all these unbelieving people's lives. Absolutely. Yeah, there are, uh, what she said is when you have a new church plan, oftentimes everybody's new and they all have relationships with people that aren't believers. And so there's more opportunity to lead people to Jesus in a new church setting. Uh, typically new churches, when they start, they don't start in a church building. They start in a school, they start in a bar, they start in a theater. Uh, and so there's a, a non-intimidating component to a lot of church plants where people that have never been a part of a church or that left the church for whatever reason are more willing to at least engage the church in that setting. Uh, Last service, somebody shared that uh, as you grow in age as a church, so five years and beyond, the shepherding needs start to emerge. When you're a new church, everybody's kind of focused on evangelism and sharing your faith, and the shepherding needs are, it's not that they're not there, but most people aren't that vulnerable yet to where they're going to share them. And so, genuinely, the church has the ability to focus forward because the shepherding needs, uh, they take time to emerge. And after five years or so, the church starts to grow comfortable with each other. The shepherding needs grow, and that's not a bad thing. It's an important thing that those shepherding needs emerge and are addressed. But in a new church setting, you're sort of this kind of lean, mean, everybody on mission, let's gear up and go mentality, and it creates opportunity for more people to be led to Jesus. Uh, It's beautiful. It's powerful. We are now a nine-year-old church, so our evangelistic efforts are complete. Um, (laughs) That's a joke. our, our role in seeing new people come to Christ is not to look at a stat like that and say, well, I guess we're not leading anybody to Jesus. That's, that's not how that goes. But at the same time, I do want to make sure that we understand that there is something strategic to planting new churches, to paving the way for more people to come to faith in Jesus. It's a critical, it's a critical piece. Over the course of our nine years as a church, we have been uh, heavily involved in starting a number of new churches. And I want to talk with you guys about why biblically we see financial support for new churches as a part of the life and the operations of every local church. We see that every church should be involved in this from a financial perspective. But we're going to walk through that, look at the New Testament, see how churches were started. I I love this stuff. I hope you love it too. It's really fun for me. So here we go. You guys ready? Yeah, Yeah, let's do it. All right, first up, uh, we have what is known as the sending church model. Uh, We look at Acts chapter 11, 12, and 13 for the sending church model. But if you have your Bibles, we'll focus on Acts 13. Acts 13, starting in verse 1. Uh, This is the story of the church at Antioch. 
Antioch is the second megachurch in church history, the first being Jerusalem, where there were thousands of people in Jerusalem that had given their lives to Jesus. They were meeting together in the synagogue and house to house. They had a large gathering like this, and they had small groups, community groups, life groups, missional communities, gospel communities, whatever you want to call them. They had those in a house to house setting. And then there was persecution, and it scattered the church, and people went to different places and preach the gospel. And one of the places that they went was to Antioch. And a couple of guys start preaching the gospel in Antioch. People get saved. The apostles in Jerusalem, they hear about this new movement of the gospel and they send Barnabas up there to go check it out. So Barnabas goes up to Antioch. He looks at what's happening. And what he notices is that Gentiles, non-Jews, are giving their lives to Jesus. He says, oh, there is a prophetic word over a guy named Saul about this very thing. He goes back to Tarsus and gets Saul, who later is called Paul, and he brings him up to Antioch, and Barnabas and Saul, Paul, Saul Paul, better call Paul, uh, Paul, they start spending time in Antioch, building up the church and creating it into this incredible local church in the city of Antioch, and that leads us to Acts chapter 13, starting in verse 1. It says, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus, uh, that's John chapter 13. That's a weird verse. All right, here we go. I'm like, why? This is not what I read before. With such confidence, I was reading the wrong text. All right, here we go. Yeah, I'll just go from John 13 all the way through Luke and then to Acts. Okay, here we go. Now there were in the church in Antioch, that's better, prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Okay, the sending church model. Antioch had grown, was a large and influential church in the city of Antioch. Barnabas and Saul were at the helm uh, they were an important part of the building of this church. They get together in a prayer meeting with other prophets and teachers, and the Holy Spirit says, I want these two because I have a work for them. They're going to go off, and they're going to be involved in starting more churches in more cities, so they're going to be out from Antioch. So that was an important moment, and from that place, Paul and Barnabas go on three different missionaries, two together and one separate, where they both went off in different places. And they go and they start churches all over the Mediterranean. And they build up and encourage, they plant. All of that was paid for by Antioch. Paul, as far as we can tell, was not independently wealthy. Barnabas, as far as we can tell, had some resources, but was not wealthy enough to cover the entirety of this mission sailing from one place to another, staying in every new town, eating, doing life as missionaries, it costs money. And Paul and Barnabas needed resources, and Antioch is their sending church. And after every missionary journey that they go on, they come back to Antioch, they share about the fruit of the journey, uh, they thank the believers there, they encourage them, and then they continue off on their mission. That is a sending church model where Antioch has embraced this mission and said, we're going to go. In fact, you might drive around and see churches that are called Antioch. Uh, our friends have started a church in Highland Park called Antioch Highland Park. It's, it's um, affirming the importance of the attitude of the church at Antioch, which is to be a sending church. We want to be a sending church. 
Uh, we have sent out Josh to Denver, Bert to Ventura, Kevin to Camarillo, Andy to San Diego, DJ to Downey in South LA, Rob to the far reaches of Thousand Oaks. We have sent people out from these places to go and start churches in different communities because we, as a church, want to understand the role of Antioch in the mission of Jesus, and we want to embody that. That's important to us, that we embody this sending church concept. So we've given a ton of money. Uh, we've sent people. We have sent uh, our teams to go and minister and encourage in those places and do trainings. That's a big part of why we do what we do. So that's model number one is the sending church model that happens in the scriptures. Primarily, Antioch is the main one that we see doing that. The second model that we see is called the tent maker model. Uh, the tent maker model. Paul, in some circumstances, will go into cities, and as he is getting ready to plant a church there, he goes what is known as bivocational. He has two jobs. One job is to plant churches and preach the gospel. The other job is to find a way to make money so that he can plant churches and preach the gospel. And he does this for two reasons. One is financial. He does this to not be a burden to a community. And the second is cultural. In some places, you need to work to earn credibility, work among people in order to earn credibility to be able to speak into their lives. So if you have your Bibles, you can go Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 3. It says this. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. Paul literally gets a second job to raise money to be in a certain community. Now, one of the reasons, like in Denver, for example, that we want to be a sending church and a supporting church to them is it can be very challenging if you're going out to preach the gospel and the second conversation that you have to have with people is glad you've met Jesus, now it's time to start giving. That can create uh, some funk in people. Anybody ever felt the funk of money in the church? Uh, it's a little bit strange. And it can cause you to question the motives of a church if they're too heavy-handed on the money front uh, or that's a big part of their gospel presentation is, and now you just need to start giving. It can be a hard moment for a lot of people. We would like to remove the obstacle of that for Josh and Courtney so that they can go and preach the gospel. We can create a cushion to where they don't need people to start giving right away. The dream scenario is when people come to Jesus and then through the Holy Spirit and their own understanding of the scriptures, they realize, oh, my finances are a part of my discipleship. And then they start giving. And it happens. And it's beautiful. And we love getting a chance to see that. And there are moments where hard conversations need to happen. And that's fine. But what we don't want is for those conversations to be 1A and 1B of meeting somebody and leading them to Jesus so we can try and create opportunities. But in some circumstances, there's not a support, supporting church, there's not a sending church, and so uh, these leaders will need to go in and make money for themselves to start finding a way to be an electrician or be, work at a, a coffee shop. Usually doesn't make enough money. But, you know, something where you can actually produce some income to be able to do the work there. Paul writes this to the Thessalonians. He says in 1 Thessalonians 2.9, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. That's an actual labor where Paul went into Thessalonica and he was a tent maker. He made and sold tents. He worked his tail off doing that. And then he spent years with the Thessalonians 
discipling them, teaching them the gospel, equipping them, and building them up. Now, you might look at this and just say, well, that one makes the most sense. Why don't we just send tent-making pastors all over the world, and then we don't have to do a celebrate generosity and give a bunch of money? And while that is a valid point, it's also an invalid point at the same time. <laughs> it's the kind of thing that you look at that and say, it does create opportunity, but it also slows down the work of gospel advancement uh, that a team or that an individual can do in any community if they're spending a large block of their time working in an environment to try and make money. Uh, and so we have the opportunity. When the opportunity was there, Paul would go out not as a tent maker, but as a supported uh, planter to go and start churches in these communities full time. He would reason in the synagogues all day. He would preach the gospel all day. He would meet with people all day. He would build relationships and spend time with them. And those were environments where the church uh, was shaped usually a little bit faster than in Thessalonica, whereas this took time and energy, but Paul was devoted to not being a burden to them. He did not want the money conversation to be 1B. He took that burden off of the Thessalonians and just said, look, I'm going I'm to be here. I'm going to preach the gospel free of charge. Just hear Jesus. Let him be known. There is a cultural component. I had a, a lunch with a uh, Hispanic pastor a few years ago, and he was sharing with me that uh, if you're going to plant into a Hispanic context, you should be prepared to be bivocational uh, because many people in the Latino world do not hear the voice of a pastor that's full-time. He has lost his credibility. He doesn't have the ability to speak into their lives because he's not working for a living, so to speak. Uh, and that's an important thing in the Latino community that they see these guys that are preaching the gospel as able to work, to make a living, to function in that way, and then also to preach the gospel. And so there are cultural components. We need to be aware of the culture around us. What would people think? What do they, what do they best receive when we go into these places? And so Paul, with the Thessalonians in particular, says, look, we wanted to make sure there was no burden. There was no wall for the gospel. We understood who you were and how you felt, and so we worked our tails off to make sure that there were no hindrances for the gospel. And the last model, the third model, is the supporting church or the supporting individual model. A supporting church is different than a sending church where Antioch, Paul, and Barnabas were there for years. They packaged them up and sent them out. Uh, what we see in Philippians chapter 4 is Paul having a glancing relationship with the Philippians and they chose to adopt him as a, uh, as a mission partner and to support him financially. Uh, go to Philippians 4, 10 through 19. Have any of you ever worked for a nonprofit and written thank you letters for people supporting financially that nonprofit? All right. Uh, that is Philippians chapter 4. So here is Paul's thank you letter for the financial support. I received in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. That's your financial support for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. 
And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. So Paul received from the Philippians financial support and he's writing back to them and saying, the work that's being done here in Macedonia, that's your fruit. It's as though you, Philippi, were on the ground with me on mission. This is a, a huge component. The Philippians were not Paul's sending church. Uh, he spent time with them, but not such a crazy amount of time that they felt like they owned and, and were responsible for whatever Paul was involved in. They actually started to engage because they were compelled by the work that was going on. They wanted to be a part of it, and so they supported a guy that was out there doing this. This was an important part of their church. It's an important part of our church. There are people that have we've been in relationship with that have started churches that we've opted to support financially because we believe in what they're doing. Uh, Genesis Church, a new church in Costa Mesa, we've supported financially. I mentioned uh, Journey Church in Thousand Oaks. They were sort, of, uh, were sort of ascending church to them, but also one that just supports them financially. Uh, we have Reunion Church that's starting here in Thousand Oaks shortly that we've supported financially because we believe that we have been given and we want to support more churches in more places. We want to we join in, like the Philippians did with Paul, in new works that are taking shape and, and being a part of those stories. So that's important to us. That's a big part of life as a body of Christ is seeing what's going on out there and partnering with it. Now there's also a supporting individual. Uh, if you go to Romans 16, or if you look on the screen, Romans 16, 1 and 2, Paul's writing, he says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Centre, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. So Paul's writing to the Romans, and he's telling them Phoebe supported this ministry, uh, and she has supported many other people. This is a huge component of uh, life in the body of Christ. Uh, Phoebe, as far as we can tell, was a wealthy individual that gave her life to Jesus. She had resources, she had means, and she wanted to use those resources uh, to bless and benefit and advance the kingdom of God. And so she supported Paul and many others in missionary efforts. I would guess that if we were to just have a microphone up here and say, all right, if you support a missionary or a church planter, just come up, say their name, say where they're at and what they're up to, 30 seconds or less, we would take the next half an hour to hear all of the different ministries and people that are supported just in this group. Like, we have a ton of Phoebes in here, and I love it, and you should keep doing that. As you are compelled, we won't, not everything's going to make it to the stage here, not everything's going to get to this place where we're talking Touch Nepal and Zoe and then 15 other things. Sometimes we just choose to focus our attention but also we don't want to stop you because you've built relationships. You have people in your life that have come through your lives and then gone on to do work and partner with Jesus to carry the name of Jesus into new places. And we want you to keep being Phoebe. Keep ministering to people in that way. That's a critical part of how the church advances. So here's a, I don't know. This is a weird thing to say, but I'm gonna say it anyways. Theologically, we don't believe that Jesus has a money problem at all. There is no effort that Jesus wants to accomplish that he cannot fund for himself. I could just, that's just the way that the reality of the kingdom of God, he can move money however he wants to move money. Fully believe that. At the same time, we would believe that the way that Jesus has chosen to advance his kingdom is to activate his body, to live generously, and that's where his deep pockets come from. You 
and me, we are the deep pockets of Jesus. It's a weird way of saying it, but I want to say it. Because what we do with our money advances the mission and the work of Jesus around the world and around our country and around our community. We partner with Jesus to carry his name. That, to me, I I want you to hear this and I want you to embrace it. It's important to me that you get what Jesus is trying to accomplish in the world. Have you ever heard the metaphor of the forest and the trees? Uh, Yes, yes, you have heard the metaphor of the forest and the trees. Um, We are all trees, and sometimes we can get our eyes pretty focused on life as a tree. We can get pretty focused on life in our own world, and we don't have any idea that there is an actual forest around us, that we are part of something way bigger than ourselves. I get the need that you have to live your life and to focus your attention on what's directly in front of you, but I also feel like a huge part of the scriptures and a huge part of my role is to lift our eyes and to see that there is a forest that we are participating in the kingdom of God, that we want to make sure that we are active and involved in advancing that kingdom into other places of the world, other corners of the world, other areas of our community. And so I want you not just to say, yeah, 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 another fundraising message for church plans. I want you to say that whenever Jesus talks about starting new churches in the scriptures, it's the local church that's involved in accelerating those financially. And I am the local church. Everybody say that. I am the local church. (laughs) I am the local church. And you might feel like you don't have money. And that's fine. I'm not, this is never about volume. Celebrate generosity for us is not about volume. And I've said this a couple of times. Whenever I talk about a big number, I don't want you to be intimidated like I'm asking you to max out your American Express and give it to uh, celebrate generosity. That is not what I'm trying to get at. Generosity is not about the total number. It's about starting to grow in our hearts and understanding of participation. And we belong to something bigger than ourselves and we are going to join in with that. And, uh, and the the activation of your heart of generosity is a part of Jesus saying, all right, we're moving this thing forward. We're going to take the ball and we're going to run with it. And church planting is a, it's a, it's a story that is not just for our generation. It's going to continue on for generations to come. But I want to share with you just what's happened up to this point in our story. Many of you are new. I want to catch you up on what we have done and looking forward to what we are dreaming about doing in this reproducing church world. So starting all the way back in 2009, we started Anthem Thousand Oaks, the church that you are currently uh, a part of. Uh, in Cal Lutheran University, we met over at the Preuss Brandt Forum. On day one, uh, launch Sunday, we stood up and I put my arm around Kevin Bailey, stood on the stage with me, he's much taller than I am. And I said, this is Kevin, uh, we don't know where and we don't know when, but we're going to send him out next. And that kind of created a, a culture that As a church, we're not here to exist, but we're here to raise people up and send them out. Uh, I think it was about 16 months after that, in 2011, we started Anthem Camarillo. It was our first attempt at reproducing. Uh, Anthem Camarillo took place and is now operating in full. Uh, They're doing great. It's incredible to see what's going on there. 
Around that time, Andy Rogers and his wife Jackie came on at Anthem Thousand Oaks and did a leadership residency, basically came into our story. Uh, we embraced them. They, they lived in the community and were a part of the community, uh, and we taught them everything that we could about the reproducing church and then sent them out to San Diego where they started, re started Restored Church in Uptown in 2012. Since then, Restored has started three more churches. They started Restored South Bay, that's in Chula Vista. Uh, they started Restored LA, that's in Chatsworth. And they started Restored Temecula, that is in Temecula. Uh, and so those have taken place over the last few years. So our participation in those is more as supporting churches, whereas Restored San Diego or Uptown is very much a sending church relationship. Uh, in 2015, Bert Alcorn, who had been on and helped us start our student ministries, was sent out to start Anthem Ventura. Uh, they are a part of our family of churches, very much a part of our story. Um, big, uh, love it. Love the opportunity there. And also in 2015, Daniel Jansen came on uh, with his wife, Krista. Uh, they lived here in the community. They lived in the Lee's back house for nine months and were on board with us. And then we were able to send them to Downey. Downey is in South LA. If you've ever gone to Disneyland, you've driven through Downey, even if you didn't know it. Uh, Downey is incredible. DJ is an incredibly white individual. He is just, just white. And um, Downey is not. It's a largely Hispanic community. And one of the beautiful things about Imago Day is that even though DJ is as white as he is, Imago Day is 80% Hispanic as a church body. They've grown to embrace the community around them and not try and be this uh, kind of racially segregated church within the context of Downey. I love what is happening at Imago Day. It is incredible, and we love being a part of that story. In 2016, Rob and Courtney came on and did a leadership residency with us uh, for about six months before planting Journey Church two miles down the road in the, uh, the mall theater. I don't know if it was the Movie Co. at the time or AMC, but they started there, and now they meet in the Boys and Girls Club that we were in before we moved into this building. We love being able to partner with churches in our town. That was such a joy to be able to send them uh, right, right over there, just close. Uh, there are more churches needed in Thousand Oaks, and they are one of them. In 2017, Scott and Alexis moved to Southeast Asia. Uh, we don't use their last name and we don't use the country that they're in because we're trying to protect a little bit of the work that they're doing there. Uh, but Scott was in my youth group at EV Free. Uh, they were on board at Anthem from 2009 on. He was on our setup and teardown team. He's been a part of our Camarillo launch, been a part of our Ventura launch. Uh, they love Jesus, and they love the idea of going to an unreached people group. So they packed up their life. They moved to Southeast Asia. Uh, they are learning the language. They're teaching English. They are investing in the community, and their dream is eventually to start a church and then hand that over to indigenous locals that could lead that church and be a reproducing presence in Southeast Asia. In 2018, we started Restored Temecula uh, and Genesis Collective. That's Chris Vinan's church in Costa Mesa. And now in 2019, we're looking to start Anthem Denver. Uh, these are, I, I tell you this story because as far as I can tell, this is what God brought us here to, to do. I mean, it's important that we be Anthem Thousand Oaks and we will never uh, ignore the needs of being a local church for the sake of starting more churches, but at the same time, uh, we are a church planting church. It's a part of our, our ethos, our DNA, and this is going to be in us that as people are coming to be a part of this, our dream is that you would be compelled 
compelled us to be involved in starting a new church, uh, to lead a new church start, uh, to fund financially a new church. We want this to be a part of uh, our collective ethos, and we want it to be a part of your life as well. So we're going to continue to put this in front of us. Paul writes this to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.2. He says, uh, The things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men and women or people um, who will teach it to others also. The things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will teach others also. That's four generations of the gospel being passed on that we see in the scriptures. For us as a, as a church, we don't want to think so focused on where we are and who we are right here and right now. We want to see the future ahead. Uh, We don't just want to exist and feel like we are the solution to what our community needs. We need to be raising up not only people to go more places, but we need to be casting vision to the next generation to be leading churches into their voice, into the, the people that they speak the language of. How many of you have teenage kids? Just kind of throw your hands up there. Yeah. All right, do you speak their language? No, you don't. No, you don't. Not at all. Not even a little bit. Uh, but they speak, they speak their language. Yep. They know how to communicate. They know how to engage. They know the gospel needs of their, uh, of their community better than anyone else. Harrison, how old are you? 23. 23. All right. So I'm 39. I'll be 40 next year. Uh, so my usefulness dies next year. Um, <laughs> Sorry, that's the, that's the picture of turning 40 that you have when you're 39, I think. Um, so it's critical that we be investing in guys like Harrison. I'm not prophesying that you're going to plant a church, but maybe I am. Um, but it's critical that we're investing in this next generation, the, the 20-somethings that are coming up right now, because we need people that speak a new language, that can lead into a new generation, that can uh, witness and testify to the goodness of Jesus in a way that culture can understand. And while I joke about my usefulness going away, I certainly will say that my um, capacity to engage the generations will be reduced drastically over the next 5 to 10 to 15 to 20 years. And if I'm sitting here holding on to my glory, then I am failing as a leader to pass on to the next generation the importance of preaching the gospel. And so we have to continue to pour into the generations and raise them up. And that's got to be a part of our story. That's got to be a part of what we do. So I always, always want to have a church planting story in front of our church. Even if it's not somebody that's from here that we're sending out, we'll borrow somebody else's. If Andy's starting a new church somewhere, we will borrow Restored Story and we'll champion that and we'll point to that because I want us to always have this vision for the next, the future, uh, the, the places that the gospel is needed. It's, it's huge. I was talking with Chris Vinan. I had dinner with Chris uh, Vinan and, and Meryl last night and Terry and Linda. Uh, it was a great dinner. Chris said that uh, his heart pings for Beirut, uh, specifically Lebanon. He, just, he wants to see a new church started in Lebanon. So if any of you are Lebanese or you just feel like your heart pings for Lebanon and you want to talk to Chris about starting a church in Lebanon, I'll connect you guys. We need to see more people saying, Lord, what do you have? What do you want to do? And where should we go next? And then we get to see some incredible things happen for the kingdom of God. And not everybody's going to go, and so that's why we do Celebrate Generosity, because we, at the very least, are going to send, and some of us are going to go.
All right, does that sound like fun? You guys want to be a part of this big rolling kingdom of God story that's been on for 2,000 years? I don't want to opt out. I want to opt in. So we're just going to keep opting in to the big Jesus story as often as possible. So let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the opportunity that you give us to pick up the ball of Acts chapter 28 and run with it. We are your church. We are your story. We are your people that you have entrusted with the gospel. Uh, to embed it into the people of Thousand Oaks, to embed it into the hearts of uh, the 20-somethings, the next generation that are going to lead um, the next wave of churches to be started, to embed it into the teenagers, the, uh, uh, the sons of mine, and the sons of others in this room, the daughters of ours that are uh, passionate about you, Jesus, that will be a part of starting new churches. And then into these kids, these anthem kids that we love and that we lead and that are bouncing around playgrounds and making crafts, Lord, that we can put in front of them a vision for your future where the gospel is preached in more places and more churches are started because they said yes to you. So we ask Jesus that you would do much more than you already have. Jesus, would you do more than we could ever ask or imagine? We want to be put to work. Would you do incredible things through Celebrate Generosity, Lord? I pray that as we go into next week that this would be a church family that says, yes, I want to I make a mark on this world and I want to do it through, uh, through the resources that you've entrusted to me in this moment, Lord. I pray that you would be writing a powerful generosity story that's going to be written uh, next Sunday. So Lord, would you do great things in us. Pray that as we worship, you would stir us. Lord, that the songs that we're about to sing, the prayers that we're about to pray, the communion we're about to take, and even the offerings we're about to give, that it would stir up in us a deep passion for you, a love for your your kingdom, and a heart that breaks for the lost. So stir us up, Jesus. We love you, and we praise you in your name. Amen.